Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us this evening. I've been asked to remind you of a couple of things, and then we'll get right into a lesson on masculinity, which is the reason we sung the song just now. Uh, we're living in a time where we're becoming more asexual instead of men being raised to be men and strong leaders. And anytime a church fails to have strong male leadership, she will fail. Anytime a home fails to have strong male leadership, it'll fail in the way God has designed for it to be. And therefore, communities would also fail. And so tonight, I hope that we can appreciate a study and hopefully a challenging study in calling men to be what God has designed for us to be calling us as families to raise up children and grandchildren uh, to be what God has asked them to be. But let me give you a couple of reminders of things. There uh, were many, uh, of course, great supportive things from this morning that took place. We had two different guests that were here from out of state, uh, two different guests that left money for the special contribution next week. Uh, we want to encourage everybody to be praying and, and figuring out how you want to be involved in that. Uh, but also, from the tables... A lot of you took veg voter registration forms. That's great. But they are due tomorrow. And so if you want to vote, your voter registration form is due tomorrow if you're not registered to vote. So please uh, be sure and get that in if that applies to you. And then I'll mention uh, quickly just for a couple minutes here. Uh, several of you also mentioned me this morning and this afternoon that you've already seen several of the advertisements that are encouraging citizens of Tennessee to vote no uh, for Amendment 1. And uh, what each of you have said to me is something along the lines of how it probably wasn't as strong as what you thought it would be, how it was even talking about someone who was pro-life but now regrets that if this passes. And I want to remind you, and, and the professional said several weeks ago that this is the way that their campaign would be run, which, by the way, uh, from Planned Parenthood all over the U.S., they've been given $4 million. And, uh, and, and individuals like you and I supporting here in Tennessee have only come up with about $2 million. So we're going to be bombarded for the next four to five weeks of very deceptive ads. They have no desire in these ads to target individuals that are already pro-abortion. They already have their votes and they know it. And so their game plan is to target individuals that are pro-choice or that are pro-life uh, and try to confuse them with the message uh, that is being given. And so you're going to see that. You're going to see that soft sell and you're going to see a lot of deception mixed in with it. And uh, so let me give you a couple of myths and, and then we'll go right into a different lesson here for just a minute. But these myths hopefully will help all of us because uh, it's real simple, but it really clarifies a lot of things. Number one myth that they're going to try to sell us is the amendment will ban abortion in Tennessee. It'd be great if we could ban abortion in Tennessee, but the reality is with the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court ruling, it is impossible for any state to ban abortions. And so as that's trying to be sold to us, it's just a straight-up deception. There is no way anything that we could do right now as a state of Tennessee could ban abortion. Now, this one's very similar, but this is the ad that you guys have seen that you've told me about. This is where this myth comes in. The amendment needs to contain exceptions for incest or rape or to save the life of another are certain cases. There is no need to include certain cases. Again, what's the answer? Abortion can't be banned in Tennessee. 
There's no reason. It doesn't matter what the cause is. It can't be banned. And so, so whatever the sale is that, oh, if you vote for this, you're going to find yourself in this medical situation and you're not going to be able to have the abortion you need, it's a straight up lie. And, and so we need to be aware of that. The third one I'll mention, the last one is, the amendment will put us out of step with the other states. Now, I really don't know why that matters. If the amendment's good, it'd be good to be out of step with other states if we need to. I've always thought if you got to stand alone in righteousness, stand alone. But the reality is, right now, we are standing alone, but we're standing alone on the wrong side of it. Right now, two-thirds of the states, two-thirds of the states have amendments or have their constitution written in the way that we're trying to amend this Tennessee state uh, constitution. It's... Uh, it's, it's the others. Uh, it is um, us and 15 other states that have such, such liberal aspects towards abortion. Uh, and, and because of the way we are geographically located, uh, it serves many states. It's almost like instead of it just being us, it's like there's nine states because we have so many bordering states around us. And, um, and so that, that is just really a big falsehood also. Uh, here's what we'll do. If we hear a lot of feedback from you guys after you go to work and you're talking about this and you come back and you feel like there's still a lot I'm not clear about, you let that start to be known. You send us some text or some emails or whatever. And maybe next Sunday afternoon we can meet early in, in, in the fellowship hall or something and we can run through about 15 minutes of slides that, that would just help clarify and uh, bring a lot of meaning to this. It may be that you feel well educated and you don't need anything. If that's the case, we won't spend that time next week but we'll just do that based on uh, whether or not uh, we hear back from you. Continue to pray about this, please, ever so fervently, and let's make a stand for righteousness. Over the last 120 years, we have seen changes in the, the place of women in the American society that have just been amazing, and many of those changes needed to take place. For example, in 1893, Colorado was the first state to allow women to vote. And it wasn't until 1920 that the U.S. Constitution was amended to declare the right that all women in America would have the right to vote. We dropped down to 1963, and Congress passed an Equal Pay Act, saying that if a woman is doing the equal job and work of a man, she deserves the equal pay. We skipped down to 2013, in 2013, the defense secretary announced that the ban on women serving in the combat roles would be lifted in the military. And there's still going to be some discussion and, and perhaps some amendments to that up to 2016. But up to this point, that's the way it stands. I bring all of this out not to say that all of it's good, but surely all of us would agree that much of that is good. In other words, there were some changes that needed to be made. And we look back over that and it's obvious and we could address a lot more things than just that. But here's what I want you to stop and ponder for just a moment. It very well could be that we'd say, yeah, there's a lot of changes with, with women, but really the, the place of men in society hasn't changed that much. Just women. And tonight I just want to challenge that in your mind. But more importantly, I want to challenge it with the last part of this of going back to some scripture. And if you're a man tonight... And I don't say this to make light. It sounds because in our society we talk silly like this. I'm not talking silly like this. Tonight, if you're a man, I want to challenge you to be a man. God's man. And, and if you're a, a son, if you're a father and a mother, 
I want to encourage you to raise a son that's not a sissy. That's a man. God's man. Masculine. Strong. Is willing to stand up and take responsibility and lead. Be what God has required him to be. If we go back just a few decades, and if I were to ask those of you that are familiar, which would be much of you, describe the Andy Griffith show. Describe Andy. What kind of man was he? And you could probably describe a man who was a man. He did his work and he did it well. He was a blessing to his community. He was good to his son. He was even good to his aunt. A man that was a man of integrity. He went to work. He was honest. Now, I'm not going to name a particular show. It's not necessary. But if we went to your average 30-minute show today and we said, describe a man on that show. Well, usually he would be the dumbest one on the show. He would be the most disrespected one and maybe even disrespectful. He would probably be the laziest one on the show he would probably be the most irresponsible one on the show. There'd be maybe a, a wife or a girlfriend or sons and daughters. There might even be a, a neighbor that pops by. But the man of the house is going to be the one that is ridiculously irresponsible. I don't know if that's simply for comic relief. I'm not trying to make too much of that. But I'm just saying, why? Is that the way manhood is viewed today? Is that the way masculinity is viewed? What is our problem in America that that is the way it's so commonly seen? With that in mind, I'd like for you to think about a survey that was done. Now, this was only done in one college, so if we're going to say highly scientific, I don't guess we could say that from it just being in one college. But in one college with several hundred participants, young men, college men, were asked, how important is it to you to look manly? Now, I'll go ahead and pause here and say tonight, we're not asking any man to try to go out and look manly. We're asking for men to be men. And if you are a man, you're going to look manly. But we're not talking about an acting game here. We're talking about growing up and taking responsibility that God has given us. And what's interesting, if you take, if it's very important or somewhat important, that was at least still 72% of the young men at this, at this college, this secular college campus. I take that as pretty good news. In a time where a lot of men are failing at being a man, at least of our, our 18 to 22-year-olds, at least three-fourths of them are saying, yes, it's somewhat important for me, or it's very important for me to be masculine. And then when they were asked, where did you get the idea of what masculinity would look like? What was your role model? We see things here of relatives like fathers or brothers or uncles. We see even friends and, and whether you want to call them priests or religious leaders or even a historical figure. Going on the next page, look, even teachers and coaches, I know we have a lot of teachers and coaches in this audience here is the reason I'm showing you this. And, and then even friends of the family. But in that first list especially, and then even on this list, what I'm saying to you is this next slide. I believe that the Lord's church is best positioned to show the communities around here what manhood would look like than anybody else in the community. And I believe the Lord's church is even better positioned than what many of the denominations around would be. 
because there's still characteristics that we follow because we believe that they are strict doctrine that's taught in the scripture that requires men to be the leaders. And so therefore, I'm not making light of this when I say this. I believe the church is the most capable out of anyone in this community to gather in young men and say, we'd like to help you to grow up to be a man. Now, if that's the fact, let's make sure that we take that responsibility seriously. And let's make sure that we do it. Number one, because as men, we need to be that. But number two, we need to help the next generation be that also. On this next slide, David Murrah has a website entitled Church for Men. He's also wrote a book, I forget the exact title, but it's something about like why men hate church. And, and in, on his website, Church for Men, he is not a church. It's just a ministry where he is not calling men back to church. He is calling churches to go back to masculinity. And it's a very interesting concept. I'm not suggesting to you I agree with everything that he writes, but I do suggest this. It'll raise your eyebrow, open up your mind to think, maybe we do need to evaluate this and maybe we need to give some attention to this. And so what he says is, he shows this picture and he says, welcome to Lakeside Church. And he says, this is statistically just your average church in the United States of America. Now, you want to know something pretty cool? On that nationwide, worldwide website, that's the picture that's there when he gives this paragraph I'm about to read to you. Our brother Jeff Whittle took that picture and posted it online at a place where it was free for anyone to take. And this guy took it. And when Jeff saw that, he said, you got my picture. I'm like, no, I got this off the website. He said, no, I took that picture. And so anyway, that's an interesting uh, uh, just coincidence. But, but here we go, looking at Jeff's picture and, and David Murrow's writing here. This is what David says. And keep in mind, he's just describing the average, what, what he says, his opinion of the average, not church Christ, just church in America today. He says, welcome to Lakeside Church that's a statistically average U.S. congregation. This week, Lakeside will draw an adult congregation that's 61% female and only 39% male. Uh, Juliet congregation is 55% female, 45% male. So much better proportions there uh, than what he's saying the average is. Almost 25% of the married women who attend Lakeside will do so without their husbands. Lakeside will attract a healthy number of single women, but very few single men. The majority of men who actually show up for Sunday, are you listening to this? The majority of men who actually show up for Sunday worship are there in body only. Their hearts are not in it. Few will do anything during the week to nurture their faith. Lakeside is the norm in Christianity in the U.S. and even perhaps around the world. Your church profile is probably similar. In today's church, women are the participators. Men are the spectators. How did we get here? How did we did a faith founded by a man, Jesus Christ, and his 12 male disciples become anathema to men. Why do Christian churches around the world experience a chronic shortage of males when temples and mosques do not? Why are church-going men so hesitant to really live their faith when men of other religions are willing to die for their faith? I hope that's not true here. 
But if it is, we need to stop and ask. Why would we have men in the pews that it's obvious to anyone looking, they're not worshiping, that they wish they were anywhere except here? Why would we have men that would leave a place of worship and not give any nurturing of their faith in study and meditation and prayer until they come back the next time? Isn't it interesting that in most churches there are more women that are spiritually strong than there are men that are spiritually strong? And isn't it interesting to go back to the first century and realize that when we read throughout the book of Acts, it does not appear to be true in the church that was meeting in the book of Acts. What are we doing that is doing this? David Morrow that I've referred to, he said it first dawned on him one Sunday when he was trying to keep himself awake in church. And he said, I began to look around and think from him, because he, he's not a preacher, or he, he is, makes his living in a secular aspect. And, and he, he said, I started thinking about my marketing expertise. And he said, I just thought about, okay, the congregation I'm setting in, if I looked at this solely from a marketing perspective, and he said, I thought about from the time I parked in the parking lot and I walked through the foyer, and I looked at the decorations in the foyer, and he said, I looked around the, the auditorium that I was setting in, and he said, then I look at the bulletin and I see all the opportunities and in, involvement, take food to someone, sewing here, etc. And he said, it became very clear. He said, I'm sitting in a church that if you were to study it so far as a marketing aspect, the church I'm sitting in markets to middle-aged and older women. I don't believe that's true about Juliet, but at the same time, we need to stop and think. The Lord did not start a feminine church. Is there a place for women? You better believe there is. And this sermon in no way, in no way is trying to send a message that women are not important and etc. So if anything is said comes across that way, that is a total mistake on my part. We know that the Lord's church attracted strong men in the New Testament. We know that the church, Lord's church had a real masculine place in it. Have we created something than what the Lord created? And that's what we need to experience and to think about. Have our churches become feminine? Why do men matter? One reason why men matter, according to one study, and to me this is just kind of a given, you'd expect this, but if there are the presence of enthusiastic male worshipers and participants, it's proven that there's a greater congregational growth, congregational health, unity in the church, increased giving, retention of, of young men and young women. In other words, we can see that they're just going to be healthier. And so what does this mean as we consider this topic of masculinity? Let me give you one more introductory thought and then we're going to zip through about eight different passages very quickly and the lesson is yours. I assure you, we're not going to go long here. But, but I want you to think with me this idea of masculinity. It's interesting to think about what is masculinity to us today, but then to realize that throughout the ages, it really is not very different. And the way to study it, the easiest way to study it, is to go back and study literature and see in literature who were the characters that were presented as masculine characters, and if so, what made them masculine. And then you can do the same thing in the Bible. I think any of us would see that Jesus was masculine. Paul was masculine. Okay, if they were, what made them masculine? A little more than a year ago, Tim Martin, Hoyt Smith, and I took a drive down to 
uh, Montgomery, Alabama, to Faulkner University, where Carter is right now. And, and it, was a, uh, it wasn't just your typical lectureship. As smart as we are, we went to a scholarly lectureship. And, and the... You're laughing because the other two are scholarly. I just got to go along for the ride. And, and, but it, it, was, it was the type of scholarship, it was the type of lectureship where guys were presenting very scholarly papers. Almost boring except most of them were pretty good. But what was probably the most interesting paper that was presented was a young man that had just graduated. All the rest of them were older, very scholarly guys with PhDs. There was one guy that had just written a thick thesis on masculinity for his graduate work. And he was the only young man that they invited in to speak on masculinity. And it really, it really was interesting. It really drew my attention. Afterwards, I had the opportunity to visit with him, and he offered to send me his thesis. And I said, I'd love to read it, and he did. And... Uh, Appreciated a lot. His name is Caleb Cochran. The name of his, his thesis of, of his writing is Be Men, Be Strong. And that comes out of 1 Corinthians. And he says, A study of masculinity in the Pauline corpus. And, and what he did was he took the Roman influence of that day and read literature, just as I was saying, to see what was masculinity like in the culture that surrounded Paul. And then he went in and studied only Paul's writings for this particular study. And he said, I want to see all of the writings where Paul dealt with masculinity. And what did that look like from a cultural standpoint of his day? And what did it look like from Paul's writing, of course, of his day? And from that, he said there were several things that you could find in the literary writings of his day. And you could find these same things in his writings, which most importantly are from the Holy Word of God. And so for this lesson, more than studying each one individually, because we literally can make each one of these a sermon, what I want to do is, is run through these and hope that they pique your interest and hope that, that our, our mothers and, and fathers are taking notes and saying, I want to make sure that I accomplish this in raising my son. And hopefully us as men are being honest with ourselves. And if we find areas where we say, I don't really do a good job in that, to realize God has got our society... Our society, and I don't know exactly what to do with this, but let's just throw it out there and we need to be thinking about it and we need to be really figuring this out. But our society, so oftentimes today, I think one of our great challenges is the woman works maybe 40 plus hours a week, the man works 40 plus hours a week, and so they come home and to be fair and good to each other, they say, let's split the work. And so what happens is before long, we start dealing with an asexual culture instead of a male-female, masculine-feminine culture. And I'm not saying, please women, don't throw things at me. I'm not saying the men shouldn't help with the dishes and, 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 and help with domestic uh, duties. I'm not saying they're not, and that they shouldn't. But I'm saying this. If in doing that, we start thinking that there is no difference in manhood and womanhood. We are failing our responsibility to God miserably. God has designed something for men to be that women are not. And He has designed something for women to be that men are not. 
And we need to embrace that. And we need to appreciate that. And the women need to grow into everything that God has designed for them to be. And men need to grow into everything that God has designed for them to be. And we need to accept the fact that the culture is never going to teach us that. We're going to have to learn that from God, not from culture. And so when we look in God's holy word, here's some things that we see that are common aspects of masculinity. And, and, and let me go ahead and say, though, several of these you're going to notice women are expected to do them to some degree also. And so that's where this gets a little bit hairy in the study. But there's no doubt that some of these are always masculine. Let me, let me just give you this example or two before we go into this. You're in bed at night. Husband and wife's laying there, and you hear a scary noise somewhere in the house, not exactly sure where it was or what it was. Now, in your typical situation, some of you couples are going to die laughing because somebody's not typical here. In your typical situation, who's going to get up and check that out? And then you say, why? In your typical situation, why is it going to be the man that gets up and checks that out? Masculinity, that's why. You break down, have a flat tire on a dark, deserted road. You look over at each other. In your normal situation, the man is not going to say, hey, honey, can you change that tire? And you say, why? It's masculinity. And so there, and, and, and we see this from children playing. You can put a, a couple little girls playing and a couple little boys playing, and, and before long, you see the boys doing things that are more active and masculine, if you will, in nature, and you see girls doing things that usually are a little more dainty and nurturing and, and, and all. And, and so it's, God's made us this way, and we need to appreciate it, and we need to embrace it. Number one, manhood and masculinity is about courage. It's about Signing up, Christianity, we, we, we love the cross because the cross brought so much to us. Keep in mind, even in the first century, the cross was such a new concept, and it probably wasn't glorified the way we think of it today. And I want you to think, one of the phrases that Paul loved was Paul loved to talk about crucifying and crucifixion. That is tough language if you realize what's really being said there. And Paul seemed to embrace that at any time that he could talk. As a matter of fact, he says, when I came to you, I came to, to, to preach to you Christ and him crucified. That is courageous language. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, the King James translation says, quit you like men. The New King James says, be brave. The NAS probably nails it the best and says, act like men. And the NIV says, be men of courage. When we think about Paul, the masculine, strong, older man, looking down to a younger man that at this point, he's questioning his courage. And in a sense, he's telling Paul, Paul's telling Timothy, I want you to stand up and be a man. And he says, God didn't give you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And the very next verse, he tells him to not be ashamed of his chains and that he should be willing to suffer the same way in which Paul is suffering. Courage. It's always been a part of manhood. Let's honor it. Let's model it. Let's expect it. Let's teach it. Let's mentor it. Number two, self-control. When you see a teenage boy throw a temper tantrum, how many times does somebody say, he's acting like a baby? You don't see somebody throw a temper tantrum and say, oh, he's acting like a man. No, masculinity is about keeping your cool. 
You know how when, when you're, you're watching a Western and, and you have a man, a masculine type of character on a Western, what do you notice about that character? In the toughest of situations, he's always able to keep his control. That's a masculine trait that God expects for us to have. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit that, of course, men and women both are to have. He talks to the young man, Timothy, and he tells him to flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, 2 Timothy 2 and 22. Why? Because he's supposed to have self-control. He's supposed to flee sexual immorality. Why? Because he is supposed to have self-control. Number three, endurance. In 2 Corinthians 4, the first verse and the 16th verse are bookends where he says, do not lose heart. And if you haven't read those verses, I want to challenge you to read those 16 verses. And what you're going to see almost every verse along the way between those passages where Paul says, do not lose heart. In other words, he's saying, endure, persevere, don't give up. And what he's going to talk about is a hard life of being willing to die before you would give up. That's masculinity. I am not a quitter. That's what we need men that will say to their wives. That's what we need men that will say that are going to serve in the Lord's church. That's what we need men that say whenever they're baptized into Christ, I am not a quitter. Why? Because it's the man way to be. God has created us to be masculine. And when Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered, he was talking about the endurance that he had and then strength. We see that all of these are characteristics that we see in masculinity. The universal measuring stick of masculinity has always been strength. Paul's strength was found in Christ in 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. And remember in Philippians 4 and 13, he can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens him. God repeatedly said the message to Joshua. We've already talked about courage just a minute ago. And what did God say? Think about it. He's about to send Joshua into probably the toughest responsibility Joshua ever had. Fill the shoes of Moses. The great masculine Moses. Joshua, we want you to fill his shoes. What did he say to him three times? Be strong and courageous. Authority. Masculinity. Also carries with it the idea to say, I can be in charge. I can lead. And in the Lord's church, in the Lord's church, the leadership will always be male leadership because God's design. Elders, deacons, leaders of classes that include men and women and even the head of the home. And this may sound strange, but when you go back to the first century with the Roman influence and all, another one that was oftentimes considered a part of masculinity was the ability to speak before others. A man that could stand and state his case to others was considered a masculine man. The passage that we read this morning in Proverbs, the 31st chapter, in verse 8 and 9, when, when the, the, probably a queen, but the mother was getting her son ready to be a king, remember she told him that you need to be ready to speak up for those who are speechless. In other words, you need to be able to state someone else's case and stand up for them. And the idea to be able to do that is something that we see God calling men to do in the scriptures, to be able to stand and to be able to articulate that. And, um, and then seventh, we see the male body itself. The male body itself is that of, of oftentimes of athleticism. 
It's the idea of pushing the body to see what it can do. As I said, if you see little boys out playing and you see little girls, I'm not saying it won't ever happen, but a lot of time you're not going to see the little girl saying, let's see who can run there the fastest and back. It'd be very common to see a little boy say, let's see who can jump the highest. Let's see who can run. Well, I don't know in this day and time because now everything's digital. But back in the olden days, when we really went outside and played, it was always to push the physical body. Who, who can wrestle and pin the other one down? Who can, with their body, gain an advantage over someone else? And it's that same type of language, that athletic language, that Paul actually takes that language and says, now let's talk about the Christian life. It's like a boxing match. Land your punches. Don't shout a box. It's like running a race. Run so hard like you're trying to win first place. The beauty in Christianity, we don't have to win first place, but he says, I want you to run that way. And so he uses that type of language. And that, that next reference, it says 2 Corinthians there, I'll say 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5 also. And then the very idea of male sexuality. The world would say masculinity is going out like we studied this morning in 1960s, free love. That's what the world would say is masculinity. And that's the furthest from the truth. That's the live lies on that topic. Masculinity is being able to say, I'm a one woman man. And I'm faithful to her. And we see that throughout the scriptures, whether we want to study 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Timothy 3 or 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3. And that leads us to the ninth thing, and that is the family role. God has designed this masculinity not just so men can live as isolated islands to be, to be masculine, but that leadership, that strong, protective, hopefully wise and courageous leadership is to bless the family. It's to bless the children. And in a church family, it's to bless a church family. And I close with just this thought about masculinity. And these are just a few random thoughts I had after writing this lesson. If you take men out of the home, usually government steps in to help out. If you take men out of the church leadership, Usually women feel forced to step up in ways that God hasn't asked or required them to do. If you take men out of culture, you take masculinity away from an entire community. There's never been a time where young men are more comfortable moving back into their mother's basement and spending their 20s playing video games. There probably hasn't been a time where men in the Lord's church are more comfortable to say, oh, I, don't care, I don't care to lead. I, I don't care to get involved. I'll, I, I'll just be a good member. Listen, I'm not saying you have to be a leader to be a good member, but I tell you this, you have to be masculine. And that means you step up and take the responsibilities that God gives you. And every man here needs to think and to identify what is it that God has given me in my family and in my church family, and in the community, where I can step up and be the man that God has called me to be. And in that, everybody around you will be blessed. Tonight, can we help you in any way? Let's all take steps closer to God every day. And if the step closer to God for you right now is to be immersed into Christ, or if it's to be restored, and, and to come back home, if it's, if it's to ask for prayers and strength 
But I hope that we all, I hope that we all set our eyes on the Lord. Whether man or woman, boy or girl, we grow into exactly what God has designed for us to be. If we can 